Gracious God, as we learn about going from brat to beatific, wherever we are in that journey, none of us have arrived yet. We ask that the words that you speak to us this morning through John would help us along. Thank you for your word. Thank you for people who study it and are willing to share that information with others. Open our hearts now to what you have to say to us. Open our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I'm going to leave this mic here and please, I'll try to run it today also, but uh, remind me. If you want to talk, just wave. And uh, I know some of you, some of you seem to not like to talk in the mic. You'll talk, but when that mic comes, <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's pretty funny. Uh, good morning. And uh, we're here to continue on in our journey in this course. Uh, this class has no end of questions, and I think that's fantastic. Uh, there's a table right there you can come. Uh, and sometimes you'll talk during the class, and I wanted to start the class today with any outstanding questions that you would like to ask on anything that has been going on inside of your head over the last few weeks that we've been studying together. So uh, there are no such things as dumb questions. Uh, I wish you would think about what we've been learning and take this opportunity to ask anything that you would like at this time. Who's first? Yes, sir. Vision. Um, what I've just been confused about is, uh, you know, we are to be like God, okay? In the new age, they say the same thing. Be like God. Oh, keep, keep talking. No, um, that's it. That's it? <laughs> Awesome. Oh. Um, now, uh, you know, his question about the new age, uh, it's sort of a misnomer because the new age movement is really way, way old. And I would call the new age mer uh, movement basically pantheism or monism, M-O-N-I-S-M, monism, with an American Western dress on. Okay, that's what the New Age movement is. Yes, they've put some little tweaks on it, but virtually 95% of everything that you find in the New Age movement in the modern world, you can trace back to its roots in pantheism, or what is called monism. Now, who are pantheists in our world? Yes, not just everywhere, because Christians believe that too. That's omniscient, or omnipresence. But pantheists believe that God is everything, and everything is God. There is a complete identification with what we would call creation and God. They're totally the same. Um, and so when we talk about the, pre, uh, the New Age movement, my point is, is that this is a continuation of that ancient, very ancient. Hi, who believes this? Hindus. Hindus. Uh, you can find sort of strains of it sometimes in Buddhism. Uh, I... Somebody else said. 
Uh, no, they wouldn't be pantheistic. They wouldn't believe everything is God. They would just have some unique uh, notions about how a Christian can be filled with God. Uh, but never that I've ever seen has any uh, Christian, uh, Christian espoused something like that we are actually God. Anointed by God, filled with God, um, having God work in and through you, yes, but not God, yes. What about American Indians? Uh, American Indians, uh, yes, you can find, you know, they weren't doctrinal in the sense of having creedal definitions. So, sure, you can find that notion that the Great Spirit is infused in all of creation. And I hate to be totally technical, but they would be more likely to be called panentheists rather than pantheist, which means that they would think that God is in everything. But they still had also this distinction that they would refer to the great spirit, okay? So in that sense, then another technical term, they would be called henotheist in the sense that they believe that there is a God among, or the chief God, but there are other deities and godlike entities in this world, and then there's the chief deity above that. That's henotheism. So, uh, but you know, if the Indians didn't, sit, their, their goal in life wasn't to sit out, work out a Western theology like we do, you know. It was much more feeling and being attuned with the force of God in nature. So, uh, if you could find 1 Corinthians 15, 28, I'll show you and people in the modern world that don't care about theology might say, boy, this sounds like splitting a lot of hairs. Uh, aren't we all saying the same thing? But I think it's important to make the distinction that no, uh, Christians don't believe in ever that a finite creature could be exactly as God. There's always going to be that distinction. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, 28, uh, who would kindly like to read for us today? Oh, thank you. When he, has, oops, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him to put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Okay, so that God, he's describing the, the, full, the full realization of God's cosmic plan, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. 1 Corinthians 15 is about the resurrection of the body. And so the whole chapter is Paul arguing that, yes, there really will be a resurrection of our bodies. But when he gets to 28, he then takes it to the next level. It's not just going to be a bunch of people running around in glorified bodies. He says God will be what? All in all. So... That's different than saying we will all be God. Does that make sense? Saying that God's gonna be all to us, our all-encompassing reality, and in all, and then therefore the logical extension of that is in the next age when everyone is perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, when we are fully glorified, when God is all in all, Every one of our encounters, then, is going to be a perfected expression of giving God to one another. And I want to say that again, because good morning. 
You came in just at the perfect time. Are you ready to give God to other people? Yes. Good for you. Right. It's a, it's a different thing to let God be God inside of you perfectly and then therefore allow God to be given to other people in our exchanges than to believe that you are God. Okay, so does that make that distinction? Yes. We will be at, as God, like God, but we're never going to be totally equal to God. We will always be creatures. Um, little gods. Um, it depends on how you, you mean that. Do Christians in the New Testament believe that they're going to be trans? Oh, I'll tell you what. Let's just look at another text. This will be perfect. Uh, look at the last two verses in Philippians chapter 2. And we'll just read this and work our way through it. Uh, I need another reader here. Uh, Philippians. And it's the last couple of verses. I don't know. Do I have a reader? Uh, yeah, I got to tell you that, right? <sighs> I'm sorry, the last two verses of Philippians 3, starting at verse 20. And I need a reader. Thank you. Last two verses. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their I, destiny, I didn't go far enough. Huh? No, go back up to verse 20 of chapter 3. Verse 20. Sorry, that was my fault. Okay. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now he's talking about when the, at the end of time and when, when Christ brings this age to an end and ushers in the new age. What does he say will happen to us? What will Jesus do? Look carefully at the text. He's going to do something. In and he's going to transform our bodies, our physicality, into what standard? What will we be like? like him. So if you think back to all of the post-resurrection scenes that are described in the New Testament, uh, what was the first impression that the apostles had when they saw Jesus after he had been crucified? Uh, sometimes they didn't recognize him. Uh, sometimes they thought he was... What did, they, what did they think they were looking at when they saw him? And let's have empathy and sympathy for these guys. If you would have seen somebody brutally murdered out here on Tuscarora Street, and three days later they walk in to your prayer meeting and say something really cool like Jesus would do, peace. <laughs> it would be a shocking experience. What did they think they were looking at? A ghost, yes. And then one of the funniest uh, sections in the entire New Testament, uh, the master uh, tries to prove to them, no, I'm not a ghost, and how does he do it? He eats a little, uh, he asks them if you have some fish hanging around, and he eats that, and he proves to them. And then he also proves it in another way. 
Yeah, he, he, it, he can be touched. So, but his body is not the same body that he had when he died on the cross. It's been transformed. He has a glorified body. He has an immortal body. He has a body that will never die. It's the resurrection body. And it's, it's, not, it's not just his old body uh, brought back to a state of health. You need to understand this. There's been an evolutionary uh, move forward. That old body died, and then when God resurrected it, God transformed that body to now be an eternal body that has, uh, it is no longer subject to the laws of physics. Uh, tell me something that would confirm that from the biblical text. Jesus' new body is no longer subject to the laws of physics. He appeared in a room that the doors had been locked or closed. Right. He just comes right through the wall. His new body is no longer subject to the laws of physics. Uh, so, that's what's going to happen to your body. Well, and, you know, we, we can't get access to Jesus' body. We can't scientifically analyze this kind of thing. But whatever his body is, is what you're going to have. You're going to be like him. And in that sense, you're going to be um, like the Eastern Orthodox have a term for this. They call it theosis, T-H-E-O-S-I-S, uh, theosis. And it means to be fused with God and to have God's fullness and God's life and God's person completely uh, interpenetrated into every aspect of your being. But the difference is, but. What's the difference between that and the New Age movement? We are never going to be God. But made like unto God, made perfectly conformable to God, hard as it is to believe, yes, that's the notion that's entailed in the doctrine of glorification. You're going to be completely conformed, and, uh, and you will see God as God is, and you will be like God, yes. So not little gods, but, but creatures that are perfect, perfected representations and images of God, as we were designed to be in the first place. Yes. Well, that's actually uh, a quote from the book of Psalms that Jesus uses. And in the Hebrew text, it, it literally says, um, have I not said to you, this is God speaking to the Jewish people, and actually to the rulers of the Jew Jewish people, the judges, have I not said to you in the past, God speaking to the, these people, that you are Elohim as gods. But he didn't mean it in their ontological nature because they're creatures. He meant it in their function in the sense that they could make ruling judgments as if they were speaking for God. And that is a classic text that some New Agers go in there and pull it out and try to make it seem like, well, the Bible's saying that we are all gods. Now, the like uh, we have a couple judges here. When you make your decisions, to a certain extent, you're functioning in a godlike role because you've got all of that, believe it or not. <laughs> okay, just bear with me here for a second. Um, you bring all this data, everybody's testimony, and then what? The judge is supposed to sit there and sift through, and theoretically, 
is supposed to be on this exalted level, filled with natural law, filled with the real law, and in the old school, uh, uh, in the old school, filled with God. You wanted to have a godly person doing this. They sift it all out, and then they make their decision. It's, a, it's supposed to be like the best that we can do in this world uh, without God actually being physically present. <laughs> yes, then he, he quickly disabuses you of any claim to deity, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, now this is where some modern people would maybe say, well, come on, aren't you splitting hairs and do we have to be this precise about it? But I mean, technically speaking, if you want to stay within the Judeo-Christian uh, realm of things, no, God is not physically present in all things. Uh, the technical term that they would use is eminence. God is among all things. God is everywhere present simultaneously, but not actually inside of everything. And that has to be maintained because um, the whole premise of New Testament theology is something really radical happened uh, after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Something amazing happened. And uh, I'm going to uh, show you the text that Jesus gave. And if you go over to the Gospel of John, you'll see what the Master said. Something totally new happened, or was going to happen. <clears throat> I'm looking in John uh, 14. Sorry, having one slight synaptic break here. I'm looking for the passage where he says, you know him, for he has been with you, and he will be. Thank you. 1417. Now he's talking about the future here. Even the spirit of truth, truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, this sounds like the conversation with Nicodemus last week, right? The natural person doesn't understand the spiritual realm, so they don't see. If they can't see it, then they don't think it, it's there or real. Now, look, look at what he says about the spirit. You know him. For he dwells with you, and future tense, what does he say? He will be in you. So <clears throat> pretty consistently all the way through the Bible, the Holy Spirit in the Older Testament comes on people and empowers them from the outside. But then when the new covenant gets established and Christ rises from the dead and then on the day of Pentecost sends the Holy Spirit, which is a new and unique event. It's, this is not something that's ever been done before. What's unique about Pentecost? Now God comes and does what? Not just on people, but in. So if that's a unique event and the apostles make it such a huge deal, 
then it's just simple logic that both the master and the apostles taught. Prior to that event, no, God was not living in all things. Yes? It's it's a spatial thing you're trying to. No, I'm just I just see how God works in my life and uses all things. Oh, no, that to me that means all things are. Yeah, it's just again like I say you you could we could probably have somebody listening from the outside and say what are you splitting hairs about? You can abs- you should believe that God is working all things together for good because that's what the scriptures teach. You should believe that. And you should believe that God is sovereign and that he's uh, in and uh, or he's among all things that come to pass. And especially in, in our lives, God is guiding us. There's a dis- there is a, an important distinction between believing that God is absolutely in or as something, like not just in the apple, but the apple. God is the apple. And th- these are degrees of how you keep going down this road. And so the Christian theologians, so that we, um, it, rightly so, reflecting on the emphasis of the scripture, have always said, you can believe that God is generously eminent in our creation, meaning present and working and very close. You should believe that, but don't ever cross over that line into and God is in everything, because then you have to believe things like God is inside of cancer cells, and God is inside tornadoes and hurricanes and other natural disasters. And that's where that theology of God being everything eventually leads, because if God is everything, then you have to wind up logically believing that the natural disasters and the horrible things that happen in this world are also a manifestation of God. And to that end, one of the Hindu goddesses is called Kali. Ever hear of her? She's the goddess of destruction, the manifestation of destruction. And see, they've fused creation with deity to such extent that that's the logical position you have to go to, that God is also involved with all of the destruction and horrible things that go on. So how are you going to feel about that when you, you're trying to work out the kinks in somebody's back and you're actually, uh, instead of <laughs> telling them that you, know, you have a muscular problem that God from the outside can help you, that you want, the difference is, well, you know, God's really got himself tangled up in a knot in your body, right? You see the difference between the two? I don't know. I just work here. No, that's a good thing to say. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Um, But we're not going to be God, but we're going to be as God, and God's going to be all in all. This is the hope of the Christian faith. Now, last week, what we did was we studied Nicodemus, and we were talking about this classification of natural people. And I want to take you now to this text right here just to show you, in its theological context, how John made this, this movement from the natural state into the spiritual realm. He made this the thesis of his gospel. In his prologue in John 1, 1 through 18, this is truly setting up the entire gospel, these 18 verses. Uh, In miniature form, it's just like a classic prologue. He's telling you the themes that he's going to sound all the way through the rest of the book. So when we get to verse 10, and I need another reader now. I don't know what happened to Mike. It's right there. 
I want you to read, and here's what I want you to look for. I want you to look for the three responses, the three general responses that humans have had and still continue to have in response to the Logos coming into this world, meaning Jesus, the incarnation. So who's, you, you want to read again? Thanks. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, how far do you want me to go? Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of the Father. Okay, brilliant. Now let's unpack this so that we can understand this crucial first step in the journey. There's three responses that John charts out. John's very logical. He, he likes to define things and show how things move. Uh, the Logos came into the world. Christ became a human. Christ became one of us. And the first response was, among some people, they didn't know him. Who does he call these people? What class does he put them in? The, what title or descriptor does he use? The world. Okay, this is the, in Greek it's the cosmos. It's the society, human society at large. So what was the reaction of the human race at large to the incarnation? Now if Jesus would have been born in the, this century, uh, we would have had... Uh, he probably would have had a Facebook club and Twitter and every social media that was available. I don't know if he would have used it, but somebody would have. And people would, yeah, back then, hardly anybody knew. And even the, one, even the ones of the world that did know him or did, were aware of him, John's point is it's not that they just weren't aware of him. When they met him, they were like, yeah, who are you? They didn't know him as he really is. The second class of people that he mentions is his own. Who do you think he's referring to there? Israel or the Jewish people. So he came into the world, and it's like the, one of the most poignant, and John, later on in the Gospel of John, traces this through. He lays this concept down in the beginning of the Gospel, and then at the end of the Gospel, he has Jesus being interviewed by Pontius Pilate. And they get into a transcendental discussion and the master says, well, the reason I was born was to bear witness to the truth. And everyone that is of the truth, capital T, hears my voice and Pilate's response is what? What is truth? Do you think he said it, really, what is truth? Or did he say it in a cynical, was he the first postmodernist of all time, 2,000 years ahead of his time? Uh, what, what's truth? Yeah, I'm sure it was that nature. So there he is, standing face to face, if the Bible's telling the truth, what did Jesus say about himself? I am the truth, and Pilate's standing face to face with the truth. And he, and he doesn't recognize that. He came to the world, they didn't know him. He came to his own, oh, this is a little bit different, own. In general, the Jewish people, you always have to make 
the acknowledgement, this is not for all Jewish people because everybody that believed in Jesus for the first uh, basically 15 years uh, of the Christian movement, they were all Jewish. So understand, he doesn't mean every Jew. He means generally as a, as a population group. What was their response? They didn't welcome him as one translation, did not... Uh, they, they, well, he, yes, they did wind up rejecting him, but they, did, they rejected him because they didn't, in the first place, do what? They didn't accept him. They didn't receive him. What didn't they accept about him? His claims to be their Messiah. And that's another thing that John does. He traces the migration of the disciples all the way through the Gospel of John. What's the first thing that they call Jesus when they first meet him at the beginning of the book? Rabbi. Yeah, Rabbi teacher. <laughs> a lot of people got called rabbi. Then it starts dawning on them after they hang out with him for a while that maybe we should call him prophet. Maybe he's a prophet. Uh, then they hang around with him some more, see some more things, and finally Peter crosses that line and says, you're the Messiah. And the Gospel of John ends with Thomas on his knees before Jesus saying to him, after he sees the evidence, my Lord and what else? My God. He's confessing Jesus as deity. So in the Gospel of John, he makes the truth claim that Jesus is deity at the beginning, and then he traces the evolution of how people come to these uh, varying conceptions about Jesus and eventually come to see him as God. But for the most part, most Jewish people didn't take that journey. It was hard enough even to get them to even potentially see Jesus as the Messiah, let alone as deity, as God in, in human form. Okay, so then the third class that he uh, delineates. There's a third class of people. All who receive him. Now look carefully at this text. I want you to see how he makes synonymous two things that we don't often link together. He links or makes synonymous receiving with what? Believing. Receiving and believing are made to be equivalent movements of the human person. Now, uh, if we just use these terms in general terms, and forget the Bible for a second, do you see a distinction between receive and believe in the way we use it in normal society? To believe something and then talk about to receive something do you see a distinction between those two? Well, if you do, tell me. Help me out. What? Okay, so the, where's the appropriation? Where's the... Um, oh, in, in believing or receiving? At the receiving, I would say. At the receiving. That, that, so receiving, in, in general conventional use, receiving is a stronger term than believing. Believing is stronger and, and receiving is... Yeah. If, you have a, if you, a gift is received, mm -hmm. it has to be accepted. Yes, it has to be taken. Okay. Uh, but don't, don't we use believe in such a loose manner today? We believe all sorts of things. Yeah, I believe that's true. But the real way that you can tell something's you really believe something is true, is then you take the next step and you appropriate, you act on it, you, you get your hands around it, you accept it, you receive it. And so this is what John is doing. He, 
He doesn't want you to think that believing is just a passive mental acquiescence. Oh yes, God came to earth in the form of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, and did all these things. I believe that. No, he wants to make sure that you understand that it's not just intellectual belief, it's to receive Jesus is to accept him in your heart, in your spirit, in your being, to take him into yourself, to cling on to him, to appropriate him. That's what John wants. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. coming at us and to me that's you know we're receiving all this and, and finally whether you're beaten down or whatever you believe it yes so I look at it you know that I'm constantly receiving all this stuff yes I may not be accepting or believing it but when I ultimately come to that conclusion then it all comes that's fantastic and that's why lawyers are good at this kind of stuff, because you made a nice distinction between general reception, stuff coming in, being overwhelmed with all kinds of information, and then that next step, when you really take it seriously and begin to personally appropriate it. So yeah, both are true. And in this passage, John means which? Just being generally, uh, hearing about things, he, no, he means that step when you begin to hear about Jesus in such a way that you then take him, you, you say yes to him, you personally receive him. Now, does he say what happens to these people? And that, I'm trying to link this to last week. Okay, now let's come back up here. They are born Notice how he says this, of God. Yes, he's contrasting natural birth with spiritual birth. And does he, and he actually, some people might think he even goes overkill on it because he gives a number of different ways of looking at this uh, so that you, we really get the point. Like he's like, like, I really want you to understand this, so I'm not talking about... Natural descent. Uh, I'm not talking about natural descent. I'm, I'm not talking about a husband deciding to uh, choose to have a baby. I'm not talking about blood birth. Doesn't he, doesn't he talk about blood there? I'm not talking about being born of blood. I'm talking about another kind of birth. So he gives you three ways of looking at natural birth and says, I am not talking about this. I'm talking about something that happens inside of a human being when they receive Jesus. And then now I'm going to link this together. So remember I told you the Greek word for spiritual life is zoe. Where is zoe according to the scriptures? Uncreated life, eternal life, spiritual life. Where is it? Is, yeah, it's, it's actually not an it, it's God. God is Zoe. God is alive. God is eternal life. So when he talks about being born of God, he's talking about, and this kind of life down here, what did I tell you it was? 
Natural life? Bios. So all humans have bios, and these two responses here, oh, I don't know Jesus, I don't recognize him, um, I don't accept him and his claims. These two responses here leave you in the realm of bios. You're still a human being, you're still made in the image of God, you're still alive, but the only way to get what John calls zoe is to receive the one who is zoe. And who is the one that's zoe? Jesus. So when you receive him, something happens. Some supernatural phenomenon happens inside of the person, and they receive zoe. They have God now living inside of them. And God causes them to become alive in the realm of the spirit. You just moved from being a natural person to... to a supernatural person. Okay, now I'm stopping right there for quick questions before I go on. That's a review and laying the foundation for future. Uh, chatting or talking, uh, smart comments, fighting. <laughs> Nothing? Okay, well then good. Here are, this is the analogy that the New Testament now makes. Um, in what we would call the formative years. These people that receive Zoe and become born of God, the New Testament classifies them in their early stages as being in the formative years. These texts that we're going to look at will show you the progression and then we'll try to synthesize them. Okay, let's start with the most provocative one. 1 John 3, 9. See, John is, John is very much arguably the leader in this kind of new birth kind of theology. Um, and you get to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, and John says, speaking of these people who have received Jesus, whoever is born of God does not continue to practice a lifestyle of sin. And the reason they don't continue to practice a lifestyle of sin is because why? What's the reason that he gives? Because God's, what's your text? God's seed remains in that person, and so therefore they cannot sin. Well, this is a blatant, blatant uh, conception metaphor. So I'm going to draw the female egg here. Um, sorry for the biology lesson, but I'm just tracing out what the apostles did. So now we have, the, in the physical realm, we have the female egg. And as we all know, what happens? 20, they didn't know this, but we do. The seed comes and does what? Penetrates the egg. The 23 chromosomes of the male fuse with the 23 chromosomes of the egg. And what happens? A new being gets conceived. Whether you uh, want to argue about whether it's fully human or not is not our point today. All scientists will say that's when, that's the scientific starting point of human life. It has to be. So John is saying what? This, this phenomenon that goes on in nature, the, the phenomenon that caused each one of us to be human beings, has its counterpart in the spiritual world. So how do we become a child of God? The seed comes, Jesus, 
And if you receive the seed, the seed comes into your soul and actually causes you to be born or conceived as a spiritual entity. Is this making sense to you all? <laughs> okay, so now we have a new creature. And what happens then? Now we're going to trace through and look at these texts that talk about the formative years and how the apostles worked this out. So we're going to start at 1 Peter 1.3. I hope we can get through most of them. And uh, it's very instructive and helpful uh, to look at how the apostles laid this out. Uh, readers over on this side, anyone? First Peter 1.3, yeah. All honor to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for it is by his boundless mercy that God has given us the privilege of being born again. Now we live with a wonderful expectation because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Okay, so what does he call this uh, person? What does he say happened to this person? What, what label does he put on there? I think your translation said born again. Yes. Okay. In, in the Greek, it <clears throat> it's really newborn, like absolutely newborn. Anybody with uh, medical training, can you tell me how long does that designation last? <clears throat> how long do you call somebody a newborn in the physical realm? <laughs> It, maybe it doesn't exist. I'm, I'm actually yeah, saying it's arbitrary. Less than a year as a newborn? But I, the reason I want to make the distinctions is because he's, they're going to tra track it through and make these uh, distinctions, it, the analogs to the uh, human uh, formative experience. And I want to make sure we understand. This is, this is talking about a brand new baby. And I don't know how long you, uh, the glow lasts. Um, <laughs> until you get it home. Okay. <laughs> okay, uh, 123. Uh, sir, could you read it again for us and then pass the mic on to somebody else? 123, he picks this up and talking about the same kind of a person, same Greek word. For you have been born again. Your new life did not come from your earthly parents because the life they gave you will end in death. But this new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. Okay. Uh, he is, again, emphasizing the distinction between being born of the flesh, born of the natural world, born of the spiritual world, and when a person receives that life that he was talking about, they, in God's mind, get classified, you are a newborn creature. You are a newborn baby. Just as precious and as tender and as vulnerable as a true newborn baby. So, consequently then, we need to find out what the apostles said that we need to do for these creatures. So, move on down now to 1 Peter 2.12. This is a, another class, a new class of people. Uh, this is really just called uh, babies. 
And you may say, what's the distinction? The Greek word here is brephe. What's the distinction between a baby and this one over here, which is a particular kind of a baby? What kind of a baby is it? This is, a new, this is an infant too, I guess. Is, is that the distinction? Help me out, because I'm being serious. I'm not trying to trick or trap. Is an infant uh, in your mind a newborn, and then a baby is the stage after infancy? A, young, a newborn is younger than an infant. Okay, great. So uh, this, this we could call, here's going to be infant. This is baby. This is newborn. I just want you to make the distinction. Absolutely newborn. Then somewhere along the line in the physical realm, they become babies. How's your baby? Now, let's look at this text and see what, what should be done for babies in the spiritual realm. What does he say? Uh, it's uh, 1 Peter uh, 2, one, 1 through 2. I'm sorry. There should be a dash there. So sorry. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 2. Uh, give it over to one of those bold people in the back and they'll read. Two, one through two. First Peter two, one through two. Uh, one through two. Okay. So put away all malice and all guile and insincerity and envy and all slander. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. For you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Okay, uh, what is a newborn baby's task? What should it be about? What should it be doing? Sleeping. Eating. And eating. And uh, growing, yes. The, the thing about a person at this stage is they need to really grow. And does he say what the mechanism is or what, what is the food group? What, how do you get a baby to really grow? Milk. Spiritual milk. And what he's talking about is what? What's spiritual milk? There's no uh, superiority. There's no denigration. There's no looking down the nose uh, about this. There's no, oh, <laughs> you're just a little infant. There's none of that in the apostle's mind. It's just the same. We don't look down on babies and say, what, that's the best you can do is suck on a bottle? No, we say about a baby, what? It's sucking on the bottle because? Because it's a baby. And that's what it should be doing. So I want you to make this clear in your mind. Don't say, oh, well, uh, that's a very low state of existence to be. No, it's just a stage. So what is milk? In the spiritual realm, what what is it? It's it's some form of spiritual nourishment that newborn spiritual creatures, babies, spiritual babies, they need it. What? It, but what is it? What's the definition of milk in the spiritual realm? It is uh, the and we're going to use this distinction. It is the words of God the teachings of the Bible, in what form? At what level? Do we want to bring newborn uh, babies, new little baby Christians into the discussion of double predestination? 
high points of the Trinity. Um, the argument about the second coming. Will he come before the rapture, before the, after the rapture, before the tribulation, after? Uh, what, what? A lullaby. This stage, it's crucial for everybody to understand where the person is at, and they have to accept, accept their status too. Um, and it has to be concentrated in short bursts of information, the cardinal, central, heartfelt truths of the scriptures. That's what a newborn baby needs spiritually. The simplest and most heartfelt explanations of the faith. John? Yeah, but let's, let's all coordinate that. See, it's the same thing that happened to him. He came to the world, and the world did not know him. So if we are born of him, yes, you're likely true. It's likely correct that they would not recognize us. Now yes.
wants to step to, up to the plate and hammer that one into the left field seats. <laughs> um, you're, if you want a theological response, you can have Zoe inside of you. You can be uh, a newborn creature. You can believe in Jesus. And as you're going through this uh, evolving state, um, it, your question really helps us understand this because people at this level who have Zoe in them, who are babies, in fact, let's go to the next text and we'll segue off your question. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, 1, and you'll see Paul makes a distinction there. He says, I could not do something. I couldn't, I couldn't teach you a certain way. And we'll find out why. I couldn't teach you the full truth. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. I need somebody to read it. But I, brethren, could not address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. All right, now let's look carefully at that. What does he say? I, when I came and I started, when I was trying to teach you, I couldn't talk to you how? And, you know, we're, this is the next life, right? But this is, I'm just going to use the designation adult in the spiritual realm. I could not speak to you as fully formed spiritual people. Because why? Because actually you were back here in the state of infancy. So I could not... I could do it. You can just tell people at this state what you would want to try to teach this kind of a person. But what good does it do to give a lecture on the fine points of Johannine theology to a baby that's in the crib? They're not going to be able to accept it. So, John, this is why it's pretty important for us to understand this information in the Bible about states of being or the growth process because if you take a baby Christian and you try to teach them uh, these really um, complicated and deep and uh, not easily arrived at positions it's going to overwhelm them what do they need what does what now look look at first Corinthians 3 1 again what does he say I couldn't speak to you as full-blown adults I had to speak to you as infants I had to give you what milk why because you were not ready for it it's like throwing a little piece of sirloin into a crib and saying bon appetit <laughs> yes Of course, and even, even when everybody in this room is legally, by definition, an adult, and some days we actually approximate that, right? So um, adulthood doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It just means more often than not, statistically speaking, you're probably going to act in an adult manner. And it doesn't mean perfection, and that goes right into the spiritual world too. So having run out of time yet once again, we get to this one big concept. There is such a thing as babyhood, 
What do these people need, need is basic milk. They need the cardinal, simple, heartfelt teachings of the Bible, nourishment. They don't need to be overwhelmed with massive ethical problems and all of the problems of the church and the problems of the world. You treat them, treat ourselves at that stage like babies and nourish. They need to understand at this point that they're a member now of a spiritual family. That's the focus. You're part of a family now. God is your parent. This is your new family. And we're here to give you this milk and nurture you. That's what the apostles would say that we need to do for people at this stage. And if, we, if you don't take this into account strategically, if you, don't, if you actually don't think this way, which a lot of people don't want to do because they say, well, that's very presumptive and judgmental. Who am I to determine who the babies are? It's really easy to find them. Just ask the people themselves to d identify what stage do you think that you are at? Are you at a newborn baby stage? <coughs> are you at infancy that you still mil need milk? How many of you feel that you are uh, spiritually mature and you're ready for the high things of uh, God? And you just let the people themselves determine it and then give them what they need at that stage and then when they're ready, you can go on to the next stage. Is that making sense? This is the, what we're supposed to do in a, in a church context with this theology. Okay, thank you so much for coming. God bless you, and I will see you next week.